Good evening. I know some of you are anxious to hear the update on the five, six, and eight-year-old and the father who returned last evening. From what I understand, both by news reports and reports of the nanny, the children were up at 5.30 this morning to greet their father. By 11.30, Daddy had called in reinforcements with the nanny, thrown up his hands, and simply gone back to work. So I will be greeted as the wonderful conqueror when I get home. And that's the way it should be. When I think about my relationship to the state of Oklahoma, I am bittersweet because as any member of the 17-time national champion University of Alabama Crimson Tide knows, we only have one goal. We, though we host that trophy high, often, we have yet to forget an unfortunate incident in New Orleans. It has been rumored among the Tide faithful that Mr. Stoops, fearing the revenge of St. Nick, merely retired instead of face the wrath. So when I come here, it is with unfinished business, waiting for that day that you all will make it to the finals. We've been waiting. We've won without you, but it's just not the same. But the sweetness comes from three years ago. That never in my life could I imagine something so horrific as watching young men first utilize an epithet that I would rather them not use. But realizing that I was a professor and recognizing that their 10 seconds was going to change their lives forever. And in the midst of that, that time, I got an invitation from a concerned parent who said, would you come talk to our boys? Little did I know they had basically been exiled from faith communities from the university community. And I sat with those young men that day, three to four hours, in one of the most profound exchanges I've ever had in my life. And out of that came several friendships that exist to this day. And I am grateful because that one of those great friendships uh, one of my great friends who've come out of that is my good friend Jack Coates, who is here. Uh, who his wife Allison 
uh, and his children that I have named the Minions and the Mini Minions, we have become buddies and friends and have seen each other, whether it's in this country or even when we've been in England. His big minions are at SMU with me, something that I told them they would be three years ago. And so I'm grateful for that opportunity. So it's with a heavy heart that last night I left you pondering a quote by Jared Taylor, the author of White Identity and White Identity, Racial Consciousness in the 21st Century, Jared Taylor. And I, I ended our conversation last night by asking the question, was this question asked by one of the leading scholars of the alt-right movement right? I just threw it out there. For those who weren't here last night, let me remind you what Mr. Taylor says. We insist that diversity is a great strength, but for most white Americans, this is mere lip service. They rarely seek diversity in their personal lives, living instead in homogeneous islands that look nothing like the cultural mix this country has become. Anti-discrimination laws ensure integration at work, at school, and in public, but at a dinner party, a poker game, a wedding reception, a church service, or even a backyard barbecue, they are ra rarely, rarely a multiracial mosaic. So if generation after, after generation, Americans tend to segregate themselves, is it possible that the expectations for integration were not reasonable? If most people prefer the company of people like themselves, what do we achieve by insisting that they deny that preference? Many of you that I've talked to have expressed a hope that tonight I would rescue you from the dissonance that this quote left you and your brains last evening. Isn't that the way lectures like mine are supposed to go? I create a thesis, I offer an antithesis, and then I offer some kind of synthesis. Or basically, isn't the rule that if I don't give you a happy ending, then I haven't done my job? Well, friends, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't promise you a happy ending. What I can do is invite you to struggle with me with Mr. Taylor's proposition. Academically, Mr. Taylor's case is compelling. He points out that even so-called well-educated whites pick their housing, their schools, their churches based on racial composition. He states that the reason why resegregation is happening in our school systems is largely because whites refuse to participate. He states that white people simply moved. They went to private schools. They created cities and hamlets and gated communities to protest the very idea of sending their children to school with blacks. Now, here's a white man, Jared Taylor, who says by his own account he's a former liberal and he is the child of foreign missionaries, as a matter of fact, Methodist missionaries, spilling a tea that, okay, I sort of knew 
But deep in my heart, I didn't want to believe. His words continue to taunt me when I look at my friends. It's if Jared is saying, okay, okay, you don't want to believe this, but I just want you to look around. I want you to prove me wrong, Maria. Just prove me wrong. Go to the party, he seemed to nag me. And realize you're the only one. Sit in the pew and look at all the other dots that are scattered around. Well, go to faculty meeting and try it there. Any different? No, Maria. Now he would say. Taylor's thundering question just keeps pounding from every single page. It kept saying, why do you keep trying to be with us when it's evident we're just not that into you? Taylor says, Maria, I want you to think about how many for sale signs are on your street now that you've arrived with your brood of Carmel children. When your house was on fire, how many neighbors rushed to you as you stood in the cold with your babies in your arms, fearing the worst? Yes, you saw them peek out of their doors, but not one of them came to you and offered you as much as a blanket or offer to help your husband put out the blaze. And the people across the street were fellow United Methodists. Sure, sure, there's a lot of people for whom you are their black friend. You are the lens through which all of the segregated guilt flow and comes out with some color. By the way, Maria, don't start feeling so good about yourself, as Taylor says to me. He says, didn't you join a predominantly black sorority when you had the chance to do otherwise? When not required to be at your husband's church on Sunday, don't you sneak back to the other side of town so you can be with the peeps? Your trips to the barber shop are a lot longer because for weeks you have longed to speak in a dialect that is familiar and read magazines that are not always available at Whole Foods. I can't think of the last time I saw Jet Magazine at the Whole Foods. So who, Maria, are you to judge your white brothers and sisters? Because the truth of the matter, Maria, is everybody likes to be with their own tribe. So why are you, in your new job, trying to make all the tribes play together? My heart pains with this question, and it's exacerbated by the fact that the moral imagination in which we create the narratives of our television shows and our, and our, and our uh, movies today seem to be employing the same idea of tribal fear. Each of them per depicting their tribe as somehow virtuous and moral and whose very existence comes into danger because they interact with the other tribe. In Wonder Woman, it is the mythical tribe of women of all colors who know no war, no ailments, only peace and harmony and success until they are forced to engage with men. Well, that sort of sounds like womanhood. In the movie Namesake, an Indian, par Indian parents fear that their son's encounter with multicultural New York will disrupt their family and his values forever. 
And even in Black Panther, now the fifth most successful movie in motion picture history, creates a world in which left to its own devices, five African tribes become technically superior, violence-free, happy, gender-equal by foregoing contact with broken white boys. In each of these movies and so many of our other television shows, what makes them work is that they are a celebration of tribe. What's also interesting to me is that at corporations and in universities alike, those who are bastions of integration, those that esteem diversity and inclusion, we think about the affinity group as a necessary element. Groups that are formed specifically of your tribe are becoming more and more a staple of university and corporate life. The argument for their need is exactly the same as the one that Mr. Taylor is arguing. That being with our tribe offers us psychic and physical and emotional safety that is only possible when we're able to retreat from integrated circumstances. So Mr. Taylor may have a point. This pains me greatly because just based on who I am and what I understand about the world and what I understand about myself, I just don't want to believe the reality that this guy who is supposed, well, just reading his last writing yesterday, excuse everything that says I am inferior to him, that I am a drain on the economy. But daggone it, he just may be right on this one. Friends, that's all I got. That's the reality of the world. Left to our own devices, as my five-year-old would say, we just don't want to play with each other. We don't want to live next to each other. We don't really want to go to church with each other. We don't want to listen to each other's music. And frankly, we would be happy enough to keep our family portraits quite solid. Thank you. I'll never forget when I took my redheaded, pasty white boy home to my mother in Georgiana, Alabama. She had met Jeff because he had been the pastor at my church and liked him quite well, but now she was getting to know him as her future son-in-law. She looked at me, and she looked at him, and she looked at me, and she looked at him, and she looked at my Aunt Arlene, and then she looked at him, and she said, baby, we don't do no mixed marriages in this family. At that moment, I thought I was going to die. I just knew it. And she said, so he's either going to have to pick a side. He's either going to be Alabama or he's going to be Auburn. But we don't do that Duke basketball thing up in here. <laughs> but in her seriousness, her fear was that we were having to make a choice. That we were not going to be beloved by some in our own families. That there would be those that would walk away from us. And I can remember saying to her, Mama, I know you're scared. 
I know you're scared, but it's not that way anymore. We can drive through Mississippi now. I promise you, we just did. We even stopped in Selma, Mama. But she said, baby, you, you don't understand the way these things work. It may not cost you as much, but it's going to cost him. And I can remember when we announced our engagement at a very prominent church in Dallas, Texas. My husband had a very bright career ahead of him. But that day, several of the leading members called and said they could not have a pastor in leadership who had a wife who looked like me. But the beauty of that story was he was the pastor of a part of this particular church that bore the name of someone who's become good friends of ours. Someone whose name is on several schools at SMU. And this woman did battle for us in places I had no idea. And she threw our engagement party. She made a sizable donation to the church in celebration of our engagement and became our champion when doors were closed. The reality is, friends, that for all the kumbaya that I want to sing, the reality is we don't always want to do things together. You know, there are exceptions, and I'm not going to lie to you. There's always exceptions. I call it the 14% rule. You and I can tolerate just about 14% of difference before it becomes unbearable. Now, I want you to think about it this way. Let's say you are shopping in your favorite store, and you're going along, and life is good, and you're going down, and in the fresh fruit area, you see somebody with a UT shirt on. Now, everybody else, of course, is wearing an OU shirt. And you see that one UT shirt, and it doesn't bother you because you're like, after all, it's just one UT shirt. But over the next couple of weeks, you start noticing that you're not just seeing one UT shirt. You're seeing three or four UT shirts. Now, you're holding your purse a little closer. <laughs> you're looking over your shoulder. But you're like, okay, it's all right. But then a couple of weeks go by and the store you've shopped in all your life now has 25% of the cars in the parking lot with Longhorns tags on it. The store starts playing, carrying Texas brisket in cases of Shinerbach. Instead of playing Garth Brooks and Reba McIntyre, they're playing Leanne Rhymes and George Strait. You have no idea what's going on, but somehow your store doesn't feel like your store anymore. It feels like those Longhorns have taken over. Now, remember, you were just fine as long as it was one or two. But 50 or 60 Longhorns coming in out of your store? No, it's just time to find a new store. And friends, that's how difference works. We're okay with difference as long as it doesn't displace. We're okay with difference as long as it doesn't force us to recognize it. 
One of the most fascinating books that I just finished reading was written by a man who predicted that you and I would be wrestling with this question from Jared Taylor. As a matter of fact, he was wrestling with it in his final book. In his book, Where Do We Go From Here, A Community or Chaos, Martin Luther King Jr. offers his final review of the efforts toward the civil rights music movement. He also considered the generation gap between the tra traditional civil rights movement and the black Muslim and Black Panther movement and the role of the white liberal. He even had time to take on the future of humanity. It is a somber book, but it is prophetic because it's in this book that you feel and see the full theological treatise that begins to emerge that Dr. King never got the chance to fully lay out and that Lyndon B. Johnson never got a chance to fully implement. Now, any student of history will tell you that King and Johnson were not best friends, but they were authentic conversationalists. They spoke a real truth to each other about the realities as they saw it. And frankly, they realized that they needed each other. Now, while King is often held up for his genius, and he is a genius, I've come in my life to respect LBG more, LBJ more and more. And I think had we listened to him in some key ways, we might be better off. Because LBJ argued in what is called his famous We Shall Overcome speech, the following. He was talking about racism, and he says, Now, Negroes are not the only victims. How many white children have gone uneducated? How many white families have lived in stark poverty? How many white lives have been scarred by fear because we have wasted our energy and substance to maintain the barriers of hatred and terror? So I say to all of you here, and I say this to the nation tonight, that those who appeal on to you to hold on to the past do so at the cost of denying you your future. This great, rich, restless country can offer opportunity, education, and hope to all, black and white, north and south, sharecropper and city dweller. These are the enemies, poverty, ignorance, and disease. They are the enemies and not our fellow men, not our neighbor. And these enemies, poverty, disease, and ignorance, we shall overcome. Some years later, King would echo the same ideal in his writing. He said, Western civilization is particularly vulnerable at this moment, for our material abundance has brought us neither peace of mind nor serenity of spirit. An Asian writer portrayed our dilemma thusly. You call your thousand material devices labor-saving, yet you are forever busy. With the multiplying of your machinery, you grow increasingly fatigued, nervous, dissatisfied. Whatever you have, you want more. Whatever, wherever you want to go, you want to be somewhere else. Your devices neither save you time or save your souls. They are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machines and to do more business allowing you to find no rest. For weeks, I have racked my brain for a response to Taylor's taunting. 
Was I pushing a rock up the hill, asking us to go against our natural instincts of separation? There is no compelling academic, economic, or political argument to overcome his assertion that in the end, we don't want to hang out together. In the end, even the most liberal white folks can't talk about race because they don't want to admit that they are sort of very much like those Trump voters. They always like to disparage every day. Oh, sure, they rant on Facebook and Twitter, but if you look at their lives, if you look at the fruit of their lives, there is no difference. And you can look on the other side of the aisle and see the same thing. And you can look in the African-American life, and you can look in the Hispanic life, and you can look in the Asian life, and we will see the same thing. So the only answer I have for Taylor is this, is my belief in God. That's the only thing I've got, friends. See, my belief is that God's love calls us from separation and the separation of Babel to the unity that is ignited through the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. Now, as an academic, I was afraid to just state that. Not because the academy is anti-religious, it's because I wanted to have a, a didactic, a deductive, systematic answer. I was afraid to make the claim that despite all of my degrees, my experience, my theories, my writings, I could only stand on the hope provided to me by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as stupid as it sounds, in the end, I believe that our natural instincts, once transformed by grace that is offered in salvation, can become the building blocks to the beloved community. I also believe, as my beloved teacher William Mallard once pointed out, that God's message of love includes both of Abraham's children, Isaac and Ishmael, and will require all of us living to our highest ideals to overcome the natural disaster of tribalism. So the truth of the matter is this, friends. This message ain't for everybody. I think it is only the burden of the community of faith that can carry this out. That in our natural beings, in our natural beings, hear me, in our natural beings, in our sin-filled selves, we are selfish. We are mean. We are unforgiving. We are self-righteous. We are know-it-alls. And that the only thing we can do is to cry for grace. Maybe this is why Dr. King kept preaching love even when the young bucks of SNCC called him a sellout. Maybe this is why he kept writing after being called a charlatan by other Christians who urged him to wait. One of the things about preaching the gospel and standing on the gospel means 
is that nobody's ever happy with you. Dr. King says this, we may have come over on different boats, but we are in the same boat now. Whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you are to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. It may be true that the law cannot make you love me, but it sure as heck can keep you from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. We must live together as brothers or we must perish as fools. I want to be the white man's brother, not his brother-in-law. I refuse to accept the view of mankind that is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become reality. I believed that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. So do I have hope in humanity? No. In the Holy Spirit? Yes. I believe that if our actions, our policies, our politics are measured by the following scripture, we'll be all right. Acts 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their positions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent as much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number to those being saved. The reason why they were able to grow was because they were willing and able to open themselves up to the Spirit. And because they were able to open the Spirit, the first gift that the Spirit gave them was not the Spirit to make money. Hello? It was not to build buildings. It was not even to ordain ministers. It was to build relationships to cross the differences. And that's it. So if your politics are running counter to Pentecost, just don't make excuses. Just stop. Just say you ain't felt Pentecost yet. If you want to live with everybody who looks like you and you like your gated community and you're not going to have anybody who doesn't look like you, then just say you haven't heard from the Holy Spirit yet. Because God's word makes it clear that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are filled with the ability to cross difference. And if you are filled with the ability to cross difference, then let me see. You would hold all things in common. You would make sure 
to give to those who had any need. Day by day, you would spend as much time together as you could. You would break bread with those who were different of you than you in your home. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we want to share. We want to eat together. We want to invite one another into our homes. We want to take care of others. So let me confess this, and then you can blame David for it. (laughs) Or Terry. I am a moderate. I know that is unusual, but I really am a moderate. But I didn't vote for Mr. Trump. But I'm going to tell my friends on the left side that if I spend all my time praying for the man's demise, then I'm not living in Pentecost. If I spend all my time on Facebook running him down, I'm not living in Pentecost. If I'm keeping score, I'm not living in Pentecost. But I would say to my friends on the right, just because I didn't vote the way you did doesn't mean I don't have the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ as my Savior. And stop telling me I don't. You see, friends, living in Pentecost comes down to the fruit that you're bearing. So I'd love to see some of your text messages since we're so into those these days. I'd like to see your Facebook posts, the memes you share, the things you say in the car when somebody cuts you off. That's always, to me, the the truest measure of Holy Spirit filledness. Let me say this. As a moderate, I don't want the government to pick up the tab for a lot of stuff. Frankly, I don't. I would like them to fix the roads and make sure I could go over a bridge without dropping through it. But you know why the government has to do this? It's because the church is so empty of the Holy Spirit that we build fortresses to ourselves and empires and colonies instead of transforming just the five miles around each of us. The Holy Spirit that tells us to bring others in is so vacant from most of our churches that we seal others out. And friends, I think lecture series like this are fandango-tastic. I think programs like I'm trying to do at SMU are fandango-tastic. But the reality is, until we are willing to live and model Pentecost, then Jared Taylor is going to be right. Until we are willing to step over and reach the hand of the other and say, I'll understand what you do, but let's figure it out. It's only through walking through life together and understanding that if I sink, and here's the thing that I realized. If the United States gets bombed, I'm sorry, I'm still here. If our credit rating goes down, guess what? I'm still here. See, at that point, tragedy doesn't know right or left. Cancer doesn't. 
Failure doesn't. And a bullet doesn't. So we're either going to survive together, which is the way that God created us, or we are going to fall apart. Every great civilization has to make this decision. And so the thing I would ask you tonight, for those of you who are looking for, for solutions, is to look in your own life. Look in your own life. I'm not going to give you a book to read. I'm going to give you your life to read. I might hand you a mirror. And I will do the same for me. What put me on a plane to Norman, Oklahoma, was not Maria Dixon's goodness. What put me on a plane to Norman, Oklahoma, to speak with some young men that everybody else had decided didn't deserve anything was a charge to keep and a God to glorify. That's what put me on that plane that day. And that's what has brought me to you tonight. It is only possible for us to beat the principalities of darkness with a helmet of salvation, a shield of faith that must take every arrow of disappointment, every arrow of there they go again, every arrow of this just ain't going to work. You've got to have a shield of faith. That's all I got. It's not a happy ending, but I can tell you that the ending will be happy. Thanks be to God.